All right. You guys will turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. We are going to be getting very, very close to finishing up Ephesians. I'm so excited for where we are in the book uh, because we've been through so much um, beautiful, beautiful indicative, so much that we have been able to discuss around what Christ has done, um, the glory of God in doing those things for us. Um, and now we've been spending some time in applying that indicative um, in, in understanding that the command or the imperative, understanding that those things that God has done in our life um, not only come with great privileges, um, but they come with great responsibility as well. So let us start with Ephesians chapter 5. If you would stand, we're going to read verses 7 through 14. So verses 7 through 14. And it reads, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, and do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is graceful even it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together as a body of believers, that you have redeemed and rescued, reunited with your Son. Um, I just pray that we will recognize our position before you, understanding both the privileges and responsibilities of that, um, and that we would be prepared for your word to impact us. I pray your spirit will uh, help us to, to apply what we learned today to impact us daily for your glory. Um, I pray for myself that you would remove any distractions, um, any hindrances, any nerves, anything uh, that would take away from your glory. Um, and I do thank you again for bringing us together together for your praise today. In your holy name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. All right. The title of the message today is From Darkness into Light. And this particular text is Paul using a different metaphor um, to help drive home what it means to live, um, to drive home the call to godliness. If you guys recall from last week, the first six verses of chapter five were entitled A Call to Godliness. And we, we got to see that there was um, a call to live differently, to live pure. Um, and, and Paul addresses two specific things, um, lust and greed, as two specific idols that, that tend to, to crop up in the life of believers, uh, specifically those he was writing to and, of course, impacting us today as well. And so what he's going to do is drive home a second metaphor today, um, all still expanding from Ephesians 4.17. If you remember back in Ephesians 4.17, Paul said, Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So he's still driving home this idea that you no longer act as Gentiles. You no longer, as a believer, act as an unbeliever. And there's really no better way to do this than with metaphors. 
Truly, when you think about us learning as human beings, do we not learn the most when we take something familiar to ourselves that we can't understand, apply what new information we need to learn in a format that fits the way that we do understand so that we then grasp the new material. Christ did this a lot. When he taught, um, he used parables that were very common, very common information and, and outcomes and things that the people he taught would have been very familiar with. Illustrations and sermons are one of the best ways to drive home a point. Uh, metaphors are wildly important. And Paul uses them too, back to back. Last week we saw beloved children versus sons of disobedience. This week we're going to see light versus darkness. You'll see Paul use in other places of, of Ephesians like walking um, versus um, not walking to, to, to talk about the Christian life. So Paul's going to use a different metaphor to drive home some of the very same teachings. And so what he does is he begins with verses 7 through 10 to describe that we are light. So thinking in the, in the idea of a metaphor, um, I want us to really, really get what Paul is saying because he is so adamant. He's been going on since chapter, or excuse me, verse 17 of chapter 4, a very long time about this idea of being different. And he's being so emphatic on it that he's using two different metaphors back to back. So there's a lot of things that we may similarly hear from last week's text to this week, but that doesn't mean that we ignore it or go, hey, I've heard this before. Paul is giving us double information for a reason, because this is doubly important. Um, he is using two metaphors to make sure that the Ephesians took home what he was trying to get them to take home. And that's my prayer today is that this will impact all of us the same way it had the Ephesians at that time, the same way it did for me this week, and I pray it impacts you uh, this morning as well. So point number one, we are light. We are light. So verses 7 through 10, Paul starts with the positive, um, and he starts with what we are. Therefore, do not be partakers, uh, excuse me, yeah, do therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So what we see here is Paul starting with a therefore, and, and you're going to hear me say this a lot, therefore, what, what is the therefore, therefore? So when we think back to last week, Paul starts in verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them. Who is the them? The last Part of verse 6 says, sons of disobedience. So he's continuing the idea that we are no longer to be children or sons of disobedience. Children of Satan, the father of lies, the father of disobedience. And he says, do not be partakers. We are no longer sons of disobedience. But notice that Paul says, do not partake with them. Do not partake with them. He doesn't tell us to no longer be sons of disobedience. He says no longer partake with them. We are already not sons of disobedience. We are already beloved children. He drove that point home very, very well in the text that we had last week. But now he says do not be partakers with them. Because we are children of the king. We are beloved children of the king. We should no longer partake in the actions that the sons of disobedience do. He's drawing a very hard line. This is who they are. This is who you are. Don't partake with them any longer. It, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians 6.14, when Paul also wrote to the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Light and darkness do not go together. Light cannot partake and be members of the acts of darkness. Paul's point here is the fully participating in the worldview and conduct of unbelievers in matters of sex and money is incompatible with membership in the people of God. That's just a very good way. I heard read that this week. Just a very good way of understanding it. We cannot participate in the worldview and conduct of the unbelievers. But notice what he does not say is that we are not to be around those sons of disobedience. We're just simply not to partake with them. And this is something that's been throughout church history that has actually been an issue in the church. That's where monasticism or monks, the idea of completely withdrawing from all civilization, all of society, building high walls on a high mountain, and removing yourself so that you don't have to worry about temptation, so you don't have to worry about participating. That is not what we are called to do. As followers of Christ, we are to be light, and we're going to see that here in just a few moments. He has a task for us. The light has a task. But we are to not partake. It does not say to not be around them. Now, as we move through the text in verse 8, Paul continues on that you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What an amazing text! What an amazing text. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now notice something. Sometimes a, a verse not containing a word is just as important as what it contains. And let, me, let me point out why. In verse 8 it says, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice it does not say you are in light in the Lord. What is Paul driving home here? That is so significant that it doesn't say that we are in light, but that we are light, that Paul is driving home our union with Christ. We are light. Do you think that's significant? Do you, think, do you think it's significant that Paul would come and tell us that you are in fact light in the Lord? When Paul uses the word Lord almost exclusively in every case, it's Christ. He will reference God the Father as God the Father. In almost every instance of him using the Lord, it, the word Lord, it is Christ. And so Paul is saying, you are light in Christ. You are light. And we know that Jesus calls himself in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life, right? We know that he calls himself the light of the world. We know all the things that he calls himself. Do you realize that Paul is saying we are that? In the eyes of God the Father, in the eyes of God, we are Christ. Not in a way of little gods, but we are Christ because of our union with him. We were formerly darkness, and now we are light. Wrap your minds around that, because everything else we talk about today stems from that. Every directive that he gives us today of things to go and do is because of our position. It's because of who we are in Christ. We are light. And Romans 1 through 8, if you read that, it, it, it describes this same idea on a much larger scale. Ephesians 2, you guys remember when we went through Ephesians 2 together a few weeks ago, now a couple months ago? Ephesians 2 gives the same information. It gives the same description. You are no longer who you were. You are no longer in darkness. You are now in Christ. 
Do you think as many times as Paul says this, he's wanting us to to, to grasp that? Do, Do you think that Paul is trying to get us to understand that? I think he is. It's vitally important that we understand our position in Christ because nothing else will do to give us the motivation through the power of the Spirit to live as light. You can't live as light if you don't understand you are light. This is about our identity in Christ because we are united with him. And if we are united with him and we are light, look at the last part of verse 8. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. If you are light, should you not walk as light? Now notice what Paul is not saying. He is not saying walk as light so that you will be light. Do you see the difference? He doesn't say walk as light so that you will be light. He says you are light, therefore walk as light. Our obedience stems from our identity in Christ. Who we are impacts how we act. And if we don't understand who we are in Christ, we will not live the life of a follower of Christ. So Paul is now using this second metaphor to drive home children. He's actually even combining them. He called us beloved children in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now he's saying we are children of light. Paul is a master of words. He's a master of argument. Sometimes I think we we perhaps forget that Paul was literally at the top of the, the intellectual game of his day. He went to what we would consider the Harvard of his day. He was extremely learned. He probably had the vast majority of the Old Testament memorized and could actually quote it word for word. That was a requirement for being a Pharisee of Pharisees. His his mastery of the language and his ability to argue is, is nearly unmatched. And he's doing a beautiful job of explaining that we are truly beloved children because of our identity in Christ. And in verse 9, he goes on to tell us, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. The fruit of the light consists of everything that Christ is. Goodness, righteousness, truth. It reminds me of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I've read this before. I'm going to read it again. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We are to be bearing fruit because we are light. Hear me. When you are united with Christ, there is a change in who you are. You are no longer darkness. You are light. And as as overwhelming as that may sound, and as high as that responsibility is, look at what Paul does for us, that the Spirit, through Paul, tells us in verse 10. And this is something I, I truly have never understood as fully as I had until this week. I've read Ephesians multiple times. But look at verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, if you're in your Bible, you probably see verse 9 in parentheses. So let's read the last part of verse 8 and verse 10 together as one continuous thought. It's almost like Paul was writing, had a thought, wrote it through in parentheses. So let's look at it in verse 8 and then jump to verse 10. Walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Walk as children learning what is pleasing. That's an analogy in and of itself, isn't it? Who in here as parents know that your children have to learn what pleases you? Or if you remember back to when you were a child, you had to learn what was pleasing to your parents, didn't you? This particular parent, this really annoys them and this doesn't bother them that much, but the other parent is opposite of that, and that happens a lot sometimes. But you have to learn what is pleasing, and what that tells me is that Paul understands that we are not a hard drive that gets flashed and reset at salvation. For anybody that knows computers at all. We are not a hard drive where all of our old habits, all of our old identities, all the things that have been ingrained in us in our entire life until the moment of justification doesn't get wiped away. We have to relearn, unlearn what we knew that was wrong, and relearn what is correct to please our Father. Now, Lest we swing the pendulum too far, that does not give us an excuse to sin, nor am I saying that grace abounds, sin all you want to. But what I am telling you is that our relationship with Christ, according to this text, is very clearly one of learning as babes in Christ on milk, as Hebrews talks about. As Hebrews talks about, then learning and growing on that milk to be nourished and understanding that we have to learn to please the Lord. This is not an instant sanctification. At justification, we are who we are, but we are forgiven. And then we are changed through the work of the Spirit. And we learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Think about a new employer. Let me use one more illustration. When you walk into a new employer, regardless of how many years you've worked for other people, you have to relearn everything you know about working for someone, don't you? This particular boss really appreciates efficiency and how fast I can get it done and is a little less critical of quality. They just want a product quickly. This particular boss doesn't really care if it takes a little bit longer because you produce a high-quality product. This boss doesn't mind a five-minute. They, they pretty much figure I have a five-minute window to be here on time. They don't consider me late till that. This boss considers me, if I'm not here five minutes early, I'm in trouble. I mean, anybody relate to that? Right? Relearning a new boss. And every time you get a new boss, it starts all over again. In the, in the call center industry, you got a new boss every six months, and it was the worst way of doing it. Literally, they realigned and gave you a new boss every six months. About the time you got comfortable, someone new came in, and you're like, well, here we go again. We have to learn to please our Father. But how can you learn if you're not studying? How can you learn if you don't gather with the body? How can you learn if you don't read the Scriptures? How can you learn if you don't seek out to understand what is pleasing to him? Not what is pleasing to you or easiest, what is pleasing to God. Because we must learn to please our Father. And he gives us in verse 9, as I mentioned, uh, it's almost like he had a moment there where he took and said, these are the things that please him, but try to learn them in a way. For the fruit of the light consists in goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, how do we apply all this information? How do we apply it? Think of the background of the Ephesians. We've talked about this before, but this is a city that is overly saturated. It's an overly saturated pagan city. They had the largest temple to Artemis in the entire world. It was actually a wonder of the ancient world. And that was just the one big one. There were multiple different religions and pagan temples there. And so they are saturated in this. Yet Paul is telling them that they are of the light and to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 
And that brings us to another important application. That means you can please the Lord. You can please the Lord. I know sometimes you wake up in the morning and it feels impossible. There is no way I can bring glory to God today. I've already started off waking up in a bad mood, right? You roll over and you think things you probably shouldn't think about the fact that your alarm just went off. Anybody relate to that? Because I do. And then you think on the way to work that, oh my goodness, the traffic is so so much bad today than it usually is, and there you go again. And, and you think to yourself, there is no way that I can please my father, and yet you let someone out in front of you in traffic. You don't think much of it, but you put someone else above yourself. And then you get to work and you realize, hey, I'm a few minutes early. I'm going to do something nice for someone that absolutely doesn't deserve and you begin to see these things that change in your life because you have learned that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now you might think to me, uh, you might say to me, Josh, why are those things considered gifts of God? Is, is it my tithe and, and the fact that I show up? I have to be singing certain songs to be pleasing to God. Don't I have to dress a certain way and make sure my hair is a certain way and make sure all of these outside things are right so that I can please God? No. What does God tell us to do? What are the two greatest commandments? I just quoted them. Love God with all of you and love your neighbor as yourself. That is what's pleasing to God. And as minuscule as those things are, I want you to think back, those parents who are here who had children who who draw things for you and bring you bring you little things. I read an, an analogy this week, and it made me think of, of my kids bringing me things. But this little boy moved to California away from his grandparents, had a great relationship. He's five years old. And some friends of, of, of the grandparents happened to be visiting near him, and they went by and said hello. And the little boy, when, they, when he found out that they were going to go back to see grandparents again, he dug in his pocket as far as he could. And the only thing he could bring out was a little ball of pocket lint from his jeans. And he said, please give this to grandma and grandpa when you see them. Tell them it's from me. And the friends didn't think much of it, and she threw it in her purse and really got lost and didn't think much about it. But she told the story of the grandparents, and the grandma almost burst in tears and said, I wish you had kept that from me because that is from my grandchild, and I don't care what it is because they love me, and that is from my child. Now think about us as children of God, beloved children of the light. There is nothing that we can hand God that is anything more significant than a pocket lint. It doesn't matter how big it is. But our God loves us and loves to receive gifts from him and is pleased by the fact that we love him enough to offer whatever insignificant thing we can simply because he's our father and we love him. That is a fantastic motivator for what we do. But do you see where it stems from? Because we are beloved children of the light. You have to know your identity is in Christ and that you are beloved children of God because then that gift means nothing. No matter what you do, those who are not children of God can give as much money away as they want to. They can do all these extravagant things and it brings no pleasure to the Father because they are not His. We must ensure that we are avoiding those things that he called out in verses 1 through 6. 
Last week, we talked about the unfruitful deeds of darkness. We're going to go into more detail in just a moment, but I want us to, to think about the application of our identity in Christ and bringing those, those pocket-sized gifts to a holy God to please Him. Because that is truly all we can bring Him. And you learn what He loves, and you learn what pleases Him, and you grow in Him. Brian Chapel says this about this particular text. When we know that our meager offerings to God, the little thoughts, words, and acts of righteousness that are all that we have to give, bring Him pleasure despite their inadequacies and our shame, we want to bring Him better gifts. The desires to please one so delightfully pleased with us becomes our passion and our power, our highest and strongest motivation. We want to keep finding out what pleases Him to express light for His sake. Do you see that? Do you see how it snowballs into better motivations, better gifts, that His reaction and pleasure to us and the small things that we can muster to give Him, the pocket lint of us, grows into bigger gifts and bigger worship and understand that our, our desires for Him grows simply out of knowing that we're His child. It's beautiful. Point number two, expose the darkness. Expose the darkness. Verses 11 and 12, it says, And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. Now notice a couple things here about this text, and then we're going to work through it together. First thing is that it doesn't give us specifics about who is doing the works of darkness. It just says, expose the works of darkness. What does that mean? Why is that significant? Because we're to expose them regardless of where they're seen. This is believer or unbeliever. This doesn't make us church police, but it certainly does make us accountable for one another and for the lives that we are living in love when we call each other to say, hey, these are deeds of darkness. Remember, this doesn't please our Father. Do you remember that learning thing? This doesn't please our Father. Let's look at the Scriptures together to see what does. And that happens in the church, but it also doesn't mean it's only the church. We're to expose the deeds of darkness in culture when we see them as well. And we're going to see why here in just a moment in the third point. But we are to expose the deeds of darkness regardless of who might be committing those. We must expose them. And they are unfruitful. I love that he puts here they are unfruitful because he just told us what their fruit is in verse 9. Verse 9. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. But the deeds of darkness, the works of darkness, are unfruitful. There is no fruit from them. And the idea here is, those who are living in darkness, although they may think that they are fruitful, how many times have you seen those who are in darkness almost seeming to be wildly more fruitful than you ever thought about being? Right? Sometimes you see that guy at work that you know steals from his time card, doesn't work right, badmouths the boss, 
literally produces the least amount that anyone else does, but he has the biggest house, always seems that everything he touches turns to gold, gets the promotions first. It seems like they're pretty fruitful to me. But who sets the guidelines for fruit? God does. So even though in our human, in our human minds we have to unlearn, because we're now children of light, we have to unlearn what the sons of disobedience consider fruitful and relearn what God says is fruitful. We have to put away those things that are not pleasing to God and unlearn those and learn the things that please our Father. And that's okay, and that takes time. But what I want us to understand is we cannot expo- expect to see and bear fruit when we don't understand what God says fruit is. We have to look at what his idea of fruit is. We must look at his fruit. Because if we don't, we'll have defeated lives thinking that we're not being fruitful because we don't have the nicest car, uh, the biggest house, um, the second vacation home perhaps, um, those sorts of things. And I'm not saying that physical blessing automatically means that you're unfruitful for God either. So please understand God blesses people differently. But our true, our true understanding of fruitfulness has to come from what God says. And these works of darkness are to be exposed. Some versions may say reproved. So at the end of verse 11, it says, but instead even expose them, or you may have reprove. And the, the word here in the original language is to drag into the light that which was formerly unknown, to forcefully make known that which was previously unknown. And that word forceful is a key word there when we think about the definition here. This is the idea of forcefully exposing the truth. The very thing that our culture has called into question, the very thing that our world today says is relative, the very thing that is the foundation of the Christian belief is that truth is found in Christ. And that sheds light on everything. We are to forcefully bring that to light. When we see those deeds of darkness, forcefully bring them to light. Now, earlier when I said, it doesn't tell us here the specifics about what a deed of darkness or a work of darkness is. In context of this passage, Paul gives us two things in chapter 5, verse 3, about sexual immorality or impurity and greed. So in the context here, I think it is absolutely consistent to say that the deeds of darkness he is trying to describe here is sexual immorality and greed. Now, I want to pause here for just a second. Just because this doesn't say the unfruitful works of darkness are XYZ doesn't mean that we have license to decide what we think disgraceful deeds of darkness are. Now you might think, why does that matter? Because there are a lot of, of, of folks today that attempt to take on the mantle and the authority of Scripture to tell us, or to tell others, I should say, what unfruitful works of darkness actually are. The only authority for what is considered fruitful and unfruitful, what I just mentioned a few moments ago, the only authority for what is fruitful and unfruitful, for what is light and darkness, is the Word of God. That is it. Wes and I are not your authority on what is fruitful and unfruitful. The Word of God is. Now, we are absolutely here to give as best we can through the power of the Spirit, wise counsel from the Word of God. 
Doesn't mean not to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ who are long-time people who walk with them, hey, what's the wise thing to do here? What do I? Because there's no chapter and verse for I'm getting wrongfully sued because I won't make a cake. You guys remember that years ago? There's, there's no, so th- it does take time. It does take looking at Scripture together with different believers who are, are solid and walk with the Lord. But please understand, there are people in this world, in the, in, the, in, the, in the faith, that claim to be of the faith, that take it upon themselves to dictate to you what is disgraceful deeds of darkness. Please ignore them because you don't need the weight of someone else's opinion on you when it's not from Scripture. That is a hindrance to growth. Paul's already talked about the empty words of those who would say false teachers, essentially, in verse 6. And I, I would echo that those who would attempt to tell you and define what is good is trying to place themselves in the position of God. When they cannot back up what they say with Scripture, please understand, giving wisdom and counsel and things like that is, is entirely different. Please understand what I'm saying. But the idea that someone else can put themselves in the position of God to declare themselves as fruit inspectors is not their job. Now, lest we swing the pendulum too far, you guys are always going to hear me say that, we are to, by the, the words of Scripture, help others see sin in their lives when it's according to Scripture. Do you see the balance? Please don't, please don't swing the pendulum one way or the other too far. When it's Scripture related and you see sin in a, a fellow believer's life in love, we go and show them what is actually pleasing to the Father. But Paul takes us a step further in verse 12. Not only are we to expose them, but they are disgraceful. Verse 12, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Remember, the them is referring back to sons of disobedience or those who are living in darkness. How often in our culture, at least for me, it it happens to me, I'll read a news article of the most heinous and hideous thing that I can think of that is, is likely stemming most of the time from either lust or greed, right? How many things that are hideous and heinous and dark and disgraceful stem from those two things? And then we think about the sexual immorality and impurity in our culture, and you read the headline and you go, there's no way it can get any worse. There are things that are done in the darkness that are too disgraceful to even mention, and my mind explodes. As wild as our culture is, gender is fluid. All the things that are put forth for us that are antithetical to Scripture, that are sinful in behavior, there are things that are done in darkness that are too disgraceful to even mention. And I, want to under, I want you to understand, the Ephesian culture was worse than our culture today, factually. As bad as our culture is, and as shocking as we think it is today, the Ephesian culture of that time, historical fact, was worse than it is today. And yet there were still things at that time that were too disgraceful to talk about that were done in darkness. And truly, our culture has lost the idea of what disgrace even is. Truly. There, there, there is, is no way for them to even articulate what disgrace is. I'm so reminded of, of Romans chapter 1, 18 and following, when I think about 
being turned over to a depraved mind when sin is celebrated. But there's a fix for that. There's a fix for that. Do you know what the, the fix is? We're getting ready to learn in our third, in our third point. But there's a point of application that I want to make from this passage before we move on. And I want to caution you when exposing the darkness that you are sure of your footing. Be sure of your footing. We are not to partake in the deeds of darkness, but are to expose them. And it can be so Quick, it can be a slippery slide. It can be so tempting to participate in the deeds of darkness as you point them out. Just be mindful of where your footing is. You may point out those things that are in the darkness, and suddenly the darkness doesn't look as dark as it used to because you're getting drawn back into some old habits that you haven't unlearned yet. Or perhaps you're speaking about a sin, a sin that maybe even God delivered you from, but you're divulging and almost explaining what God has delivered you from in a way that brings it glory in and of itself. I've been guilty of that. Almost like a low-key brag. God delivered me from this, this, and this. You have no idea. I used to do this and that, and you just you wouldn't even know me back in the day. And we go on and on about how back in the day, but then we followed up with God delivered me from that. Well, how much, how much glory did you just give to all the things that you used to do? If, we're not, if it's disgraceful to even mention those things done in darkness, we ought to be very careful how we even explain to point to the things and the evil deeds done in darkness. Be careful of your footing, because it's very, very quick and easy to slip back into that. It's very, very easy. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? So we know we're supposed to, we know we're a children of light. We know that. Paul is, is, is telling us that. We know we're supposed to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, and in so doing, we can then make sure that we're not participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, that we are to expose them, how we are to expose them, the cautions around that. Verse 13 and 14 goes on to say, for our third point, it is hope is found in the light. Point number three, hope is found in the light. Verses 13 and 14. For this reason it says, uh, excuse me, verse 13, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So what do we do? So we know that the light is a, is a description of Christ and that we are the light. So verse 13 gives us a solution. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the light that exposes the darkness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the light that exposes the darkness. When we hold anything up to the light of Christ, we understand whether it's disgraceful or good. Whether the fruit of it is light or dark. In fact, Christ taught this 
about this light. He, 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 we know from his teaching in John chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there with me, John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he's going to explain this himself. John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. It reads, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. Luke 8.17 echoes something similar. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That's Luke 8 verse 17. Christ will expose the deeds of darkness. We simply have to expose the deeds of darkness to him. You may think that's a really abstract thought, Josh. How, how do you practically do that? Don't worry, we're going to get to it. But I want to promise you something that the Word of God promises here. I want to drive this home for you because Luke says this, and I want us to think in a large, big picture even if there's something that we cannot expose to the light right now, what's one of the biggest, heinous, worst, most heinous things in, in America? There's a movie that just came out about it, child trafficking. I think it's one of the most despicable, tragic things in our country today. And we may expose that, we may call it, we may point to the light and never see anything change. But what God promises is there will be a time when that will come to an end. There will be a time when his glory will so shine as he takes control of this world and establishes his kingdom once again and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and all things will be ultimately exposed to the light. I say that to you to give you confidence because sometimes it can be very defeating and you feel like you're carrying a candle in a hurricane trying to expose light on the darkness. That's how it can truly feel. But God wins the victory, and he will expose those things in the darkness. So when we think of our text in Ephesians, as well as the explanation from Christ, we begin to realize that those who love the darkness do not come to the light unless their dark deeds are first exposed. Think about your own salvation. Did you know you needed Christ until someone came and said, these things that you're doing are against God? against his law and you need a savior. So when you think about those things being clearly and, and, and matter-of-factly exposed to the light of Christ, we can compare all things that are done to his definition of good fruit. We begin to see that those people that we are able to expose to, to Christ, expose them to the light, their deeds then become the catalyst to their being brought to Christ when they are his children. And those who are not his children, those who are not elect, will continue to, to proceed further into darkness. This idea here in verse 13 and 14 is going to be a metaphor for salvation. In verse 14, I did some digging here because I... I, I read this for this reason it says awake sleeper and, and when I've read this in the past 
I've always thought, well, I'm sure there's a, a psalm somewhere or, you know, a minor prophet or something that this came from. Did you know that this actually is not a portion of Scripture that Paul quoted here? This is thought to be a small fragment of a hymn that the early Christians sang to one another. It's based out of Isaiah, so there is, is basis in Scripture. But this, this to me was so encouraging because Paul uses something to encourage the other believers that they wrote for the believers. That's, pretty, that's really beautiful, really. So as, as a side note here, please encourage one another. Please encourage one another. Take Scripture as a foundation, but there is absolutely nothing wrong with taking the principles of Scripture and encouraging your brothers and sisters with them. In fact, here and later on in, in chapter 5, probably next week or the week after, we're going to see a verse that specifically calls believers to encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Please encourage one another. I know that's, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a perfect application here because we see it in real time. In Scripture, Paul using something that believers wrote as a foundation from a foundation of Scripture with truth in it to encourage one another. Now, back to the meaning of the text. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Those who are in this darkness are almost in a stupor. They're, 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 they're asleep. They're, they're, they're unregenerate. They're dead spiritually. And look at the urgency with which we are to reach for them. Awake, sleeper. Awake. Call them to, to come to life, to be regenerated. Call them to understand. Awaken from your sleep. Come out of your slumber and understand your deeds before the light of Christ. Arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. So let me ask you, if you're trying to arouse someone from a deep slumber for their own safety, how do you do it? If your neighbor, if your neighbor's house was on fire, you walked out to go to work one morning, and you look next door, if you can see next door from where you live, I don't know how much room you have. This is a farm community. I'm just taking into account, okay? You see the smoke. And you go to your neighbor's house. And you go up and you go, tap on the window. Well, I hope they answer the door. Tap on the window. Man, you tap again. I don't want to wake up the baby. Right? Or do you go and you practically break the door down to urgently tell them, wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Arise from your sleep. Should we not have the same urgency for those who are hiding their deeds of darkness, trying to keep them from the light of Christ? We should approach those who are living in darkness with the same urgency that we would approach our neighbor who is asleep in a burning house. Because ultimately, our neighbors spiritually are in a burning house, dead. Dead spiritually. And the only thing that will revive them, the only thing that will wake them, is the light of Christ shining on them. You expose them to the gospel. Hey, I, I see that your deeds are, are dark. Your fruit is of the sons of disobedience. Your fruit is not according to Good fruit according to what Scripture tells us. 
It's not me saying it. This is the law of God. And before a holy God, you are guilty. And my friend, your deeds are dark. Look at it compared to the light. Look at it compared to Christ, his perfection, his righteousness, his goodness. You are dead. But awaken and look to the light, for he is the only salvation. He is the only draw to leave that darkness, to awaken, to be alive spiritually as Christ. That's the kind of conversation that you have. I mentioned earlier we would have a practical way of applying the exposition of, or the exposing of darkness to light. That's how it's done. It's as simple as something like, like that conversation. And it is very hard sometimes. What, what, what will they think of me when I try to expose their deeds of, of darkness? What? I don't want to be the guy at work that's, you know, the Bible thumper. I don't want to be the guy at the Thanksgiving dinner that nobody wants to invite to family dinner anymore because all I do is make everyone feel uncomfortable. The light sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. We are the light. There's no excuse for it not to shine. And thinking about this passage, doesn't the, the, the adage or the, the parable that Christ shared about hiding your candle under a bushel, or the old kid's song, you know, they made a kid's song out of it, who lights a lamp and puts it in a corner? No, they put it in the lamp post in the middle of the room that the whole light, the whole room might have light. Believers are called a city set on a hill, a hill, a hill, a hill, not a hill, a hill. But this idea that we are to be light and to be and be seen and shown and exposed in the darkness is seen throughout Scripture. And there are going to be times that it makes us uncomfortable, but we have to have the urgency to expose the disgraceful deeds of darkness so that those whom are the Lord's will be drawn to him. That's what the Great Commission is about, is it not? Go forth, teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey. How do they know what to obey unless we teach them? That's why discipleship is so vitally important. In fact, it's been important in two places today. Back when we talked about learning what pleases the Father, how are we going to learn if we don't teach one another? The babes in Christ need to be taught. Older believers, don't hole up in your house with your Bible. I, I, I've seen it. People walking 30 years and you ask them, hey, can you talk to me about this particular topic? Hey, I really don't have time. I've got this going on. I'm, I'm retiring soon. And it does happen. I've seen it real time. Teach one another. Discipleship is so important. If you have questions, ask. If you want resources, ask. But let us teach one another because those who are, are, are going against what Christ tells them to do, they don't know what not to do until you tell them you're not supposed to do that. You follow that logic? Really hard for me to work out and say that. Did you see how slow I had to get? But it messed that up. They don't know what not to do until you tell them not to do it. And then when you tell them, hey, you're not supposed to do this, and they go, oh, okay, well, now I'm in trouble because before a holy God, I'm in trouble. Then you give them the sweet balm that is the grace of Christ. So our application is that we must urgently be calling everyone that we meet to awaken because we are light. 
Not only are we to avoid the deeds of darkness, we've talked about this, we are light, avoid the deeds of darkness. But we are to urgently, as the light, walk in such a manner that our light is being shown on the darkness of those around us so that they will see Christ in us, understand that what they're doing are deeds of darkness, and then we can call them to repentance and faith. We must, we must be light to those around us. As I prepare to conclude, I want you to notice that in both of these metaphors, last week and this week, this is, this is very important, Paul is not using God's wrath to elicit this behavior or to threaten them or us. He's not. We've seen two amazing metaphors, two descriptions, and he is calling us to righteous living. Make no mistake, he is calling us to not live in darkness anymore. He is calling us to be children of light, and he is telling us what to do. It's an imperative. But notice what he is not doing. He is not using the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath of God was poured out on his son some 2,000 years ago on a cross for every person that would be saved throughout eternity. There is no wrath left for the believer. There may be discipline. There may be displeasure. And a loving father disciplines those whom he loves. But there is no longer wrath. There is no longer judgment for you. But what Paul does is he doesn't point to God's wrath. What he does point to is your identity in Christ as the motivator for living like Christ. Everything that a believer is to be and do is to stem from Christ. God's wrath is no longer reserved for us. It was poured out on Christ. We are united with Christ, and therefore we live out from that position in Christ. We are called to live out His commands. Our motivation is not to keep God from being angry. Our motivation is because we are in Christ. That's why he spent three chapters in the beginning of this letter explaining who we are in Christ and keeps pointing back to it along the way. Every time he gives a command, he ties it back to our identity in Christ. Everything from our daily decisions and activities to our sharing of the gospel and urgently calling people to awaken to the darkness they are living in and turn to the light are motivated by our position in Christ. Keep that at the forefront this week. We are who we are and we are called to live as we are to called to live because of our position in Christ. We don't earn our position in Christ because of doing those things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come today and to understand that we are in the light, that we are the light in the Lord, and that we are united with Christ. And out of that identity, out of that position in you, we are motivated to live as you have called us to live, that we are empowered to live by the Spirit as you have called us to live. But Lord, I also ask that you would help each of us to apply verses 13 and 14, that we would urgently call all those in darkness to awaken so that their deeds would be exposed to the light. 
and that you would call to yourself the elect that you have chosen to save and that we would, by your grace, be privileged participants in that process. We glorify you and thank you for revealing yourself to us and I pray that we will never, never tire of learning how to please you as our Father. In your holy name I pray, amen.